Welcome to the Center for New American Security's National Security Startups podcast series, hosted by Senior Fellow and Director of the Technology and National Security Program, Ben Fitzgerald. Welcome, everyone, to um, another episode of our National Security Startups podcast. We are joined today by Dr. Erin Simpson. Erin, welcome. Hello. Thank you, Ben. For those of you who don't know Erin by her stellar reputation, um, Erin, until recently, was the CEO of Keras. Uh, prior to her time at Keras, she spent a lot of time in the field, particularly in Afghanistan, uh, providing ad- advice uh, to, to the Marine Corps. She's also taught at the Marine Corps Command and Staff College and has a PhD from Harvard. So has an excellent background substantively and in terms of running a business. We're very glad to have you here, Erin. Um, let's just jump straight into some, into some questions. Sound Sounds good? good. Cool. So... You just completed a successful exit via sale with Karis. Uh, most importantly, let's just stop and say congratulations. Thank you. Thank not, you. Not everyone gets to do that. <laughs> um, for those not familiar with Karis, could you just tell us a little bit about what the business does, how you got started, clients, that kind of thing? Sure. Um, so Karis was founded uh, by Dave Kilcullen, a friend of the show, if you will, uh, in, in 2010. Um, I joined when I got back from Afghanistan. Um, and like a lot of firms um, kind of that get started in the consulting or in the uh, analytics space, began with kind of one project uh, and we built, built around that. So the you know, core uh, interests I think that, that all of the folks who came through Karis you know, had um, was um, a deep interest in, in modern conflict and understanding and analyzing modern conflicts and coming up with new approaches to mm-hmm. understanding those better. I used to call it sensing and, and sense-making, um, but there was a real interest in trying to figure out, you know, through open-source data, through field research, through big data, different kinds of analytical techniques that would help um, the Defense Department, USAID, the World Bank, private companies, better understand these kind of complex conflicts that we see around the world. That's great. And so what was the, the particular gap that Keras filled? And, and how do you feel that sort of being a startup helped you address that gap? Sure. So we um, you know, embarked on the very ambitious goal of trying to create a new market. And we can come back to why that was either a brilliant or terrible idea. <laughs> uh, kind of flip a coin, depending on the day. Um, but we're looking to marry up some very sophisticated um, data analytic techniques um, with good social science, you know, what we thought we knew about uh, political violence or insurgencies, um, along with uh, kind of muddy boots experience. So people who had spent time in the field, people who had spent time uh, with development organizations or military services um, actually out in the world doing things. So not just your typical um, aid contractor, not just your typical data analytics firm, but really trying to be uh, in the middle of all of those things um, and provide a, a new capability to folks. Um, being a startup, you know, is great when you're trying to do something new, uh, yeah. but it also means that you are you are sailing into headwinds pretty much the entire time. Totally. And so, w- were there other sort of uh, natural competitors in terms of large firms that were already out there doing something similar? How, how, how did the landscape look, despite the fact that you were sure. creating a new market? Well, there were certainly a lot of uh, new data analytics firms, you know, in this time frame. This is, you know, 2010, 2012, uh, and, 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 you know, even more recently. So you saw a lot of folks coming into that space um, as the Defense Department and the intelligence community were gaining an interest in, in these techniques. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, probably our biggest competition was honestly our, our primes and partners. Uh, we used to call them yeah. competitimates, which I think is not uncommon in this landscape. Um, and part of that's driven 
you know, by the way the government sort of chooses to, to do business. Um, you need to be on these large uh, IDIQs or IQCs, these kind of big omnibus contracts. And, 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 and an IDIQ and an IQCI. Uh, indefinite quantity contracts or yeah. indefinite something, definite something. A lot of, everything is indefinite. That's the important part. Um, but they're, they're kind of like, you know, large scale credit cards for a government office. Um, yeah. And the big firms, um, you know, and that's everybody that, you know, you might have, have heard of in this space ranging from uh, Lockheed Martin to Booz Allen Hamilton to the USAID contractors um, put together teams um, to try to win a spot on the big contract and then you bid on the task orders that, that come out. And so um, your competitors might be your prime, your competitors might be your other, your other partners on this. Um, and that creates um, in some ways some good incentives for some good behavior, you hope. But certainly some, some challenges in terms of, you know, just how much can you innovate? How much new stuff are you going to bring to the table when you're going to have to share it with a lot of folks that you don't have uh, a lot of uh, experience with? Yeah, so I, I, I definitely had the exact same experience when I was running things at Noetic. And I often found that I could never get any of those primes to be interested in my organization. However, if I, if I was speaking to someone who owned funding and they needed to to, to find a vehicle to get access to me, all of a sudden I would receive phone calls from these companies who were never calling me back. It's like, man, Noetic sounds like a fascinating organization. We'd love to partner with you on this one thing. And then we want to try to replicate it ourselves. It's Absolutely. Like, Great. That sounds like a fantastic partnership. And if you, if you already come to the table with a bit of, you know, either ego or paranoia or both, um, it's, it can be challenging to try to put together those partnerships in a way where you're bringing unique capability um, and you don't think it's going to get appropriated or borged, you know, by the by the larger larger company. Um, and makes it certainly makes it's a tricky piece of this sort of business landscape. So I think that, that that's sort of one of the endemic challenges associated with running a startup in the current sort of DOD ecosystem of, of, of acquisition. I'd just be interested in your thoughts on other challenges associated with running a startup when you do have predominantly DOD or USG clients. Yeah, there's certainly, um, I mean, I think the biggest challenge right now is kind of the uncertainty in the funding landscape. Yep. You know, so back in the day, uh, you would certainly get a full year's, you know, contract for something and, you know, on these larger contracts, you know, multi-year contracts. And that's why people found it attractive to work with the government. And they're willing to jump through these other accounting and security and, you know, other kinds of compliance hoops. You know, I think almost every contract that we've had, certainly since the Budget Control Act went into effect, um, has been partially funded. Um, yeah. It's incrementally funded, so you're yeah. getting three and four months, you know, of funding at a time, and that you know sort of sounds reasonable. I mean, like you know, you kind of you don't have to pay your rent before you have to pay your rent, so you know whatever. But the for us, where that really manifested as a challenge was in retention. Yep. You needed to be. You, we had very high talent people. Um, we had very people, especially once we were really invested on the data analytics and data science space, folks who could be employed at dozens of firms across the city. Um, and so to tell them that, well, we think that you're going to still be able to pay you in September, you know, but it's June, and I honestly I, I can't 100% guarantee that. I mean, folks, so folks will, will vote with their feet, you know, eventually. Now, you know, to be honest, you know, the big firms struggle with the same problem. Yeah. They just don't tell you <laughs> that the contract might fall apart and they'll fire you with two weeks notice. Yeah. Um, you know, as a smaller firm, um, you know, I, we were trying to avoid, you know, that particular problem. But the, the uncertainty, it's not just so much the low dollar value. You can deal with low dollars. It's the uncertainty around those dollars that really 
uh, create some, put sand in the gears and create some headaches. And the thing that I found as well is that it's the gaps between the funding. Mm -hmm. So from a DOD perspective, like, well, you're still getting the money. It's like, well, I'm not getting the money back from the three weeks in which my team had nothing to do and I didn't have any income to, 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 to cover their costs. And I also wasn't going to fire them or send them on unpaid leave for that period of time. And oh, by the way, this contract is capped at you know 9% fee to begin with. So it's not like there was a ton of extra money floating through this enterprise yeah. you know, to smooth out all of these bumps you know, along, along the way. Um, I mean, that's certainly um, a challenge. I mean, some of the other typical administrative pieces, I think, are, are a headache, but they're part and parcel. I mean, the, the security stuff and the clearance stuff is always kind of a, a, a challenge, but if you want to be in this space, you either choose to participate in that regime or, or not. So, so, so thinking about that, uh, from, from your perspective, it, it's not a, a, a key challenge or it's just something you have to live with, the fact that you are going to have defense contract audit agency stuff, you're going to have security clearance, uh, uh, what do you call it? I'm glad I've forgotten the term for that. Site licenses, right. site clearances, those kind of things. That's just part of the course and you build it into the business model or? Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm probably just inured to it at, at this point. If you were coming from outside the government contracting system, um, you would be quite startled. Um, certainly there are some organizational culture pieces. You know, if you're coming from a more freewheeling startup culture or an academic research culture, um, the timesheet <laughs> yeah, 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 regime yeah, yeah. will certainly feel um, like a bit of a pinch. Um, you know, the other piece that certainly can be a challenge, and it's it's less of an uh, administrative, you know, or compliance issue, is just the need to be on these contract vehicles. I mean, I can't, you know, I've tried to forget the number of times that we had not only interested clients, but clients with money and a capability that we were ready to, to deploy, you know, on, on short order, but they couldn't figure out how to move their money, you know, onto a contract, you know, that would that we could get onto. And and that was, I mean, I think that's something that um, the Defense Innovation Unit is trying to address with their new procurement model. Yep. But there definitely needs to be, from from my perspective, some some better, um, you know, sim simplified acquisition thresholds or charge card purchase order types arrangements, at least for pilot proposals or you know, small, I mean, small healers kind of relative in the Defense Department, but um, single shot engagements to try to then figure out if something works so that you can keep, uh, and, the, and while you're figuring out these, you know, other service agreements, you know, for something that's that's longer term. But that, you know, we used to call it vehicle palooza. Uh, yeah. And it was, it was never fun. It was really frustrating. And, you know, it was definitely a challenge for um, a small company to, you know, find all the points of entry, you know, for a particular, particular office. That was definitely a dark art. Yeah, absolutely. And so um, speaking of dark arts, were there particular sort of management practices or techniques that you would implement to help deal with the, the uncertainty of the funding um, or those bureaucratic burdens? Uh, as, as an example, when I was running things, um, when, when I was running a company, I would keep uh, about four months cash on hand, just operating cash, which is not how you would run a normal business. Mm -hmm. um, but I knew, knew that I needed to do that. And, and I've, I had periods where I went through virtually all of that thanks to continuing resolutions. So, so, I, so I had to take the risk of not deploying my capital for, towards growth 
just as a risk mitigation strategy. Absolutely. Uh, are, are there other things that you would do or do you think they're important for, for folks who are running startups who might be listening to this? Yeah, I mean, we certainly went through similar, I mean, anybody who was here, you know, 2011, 2012, you know, went through, yep. um, you know, enforced some, you know, really um, serious, I think, ratcheting of expectations, you know, through that period as, as well. Um, one of the things that I did, we certainly, we didn't keep quite that much cash, but we kept that plus we kept our line of credit free. So we didn't use the yeah. line of credit for growth investment or R&D. We used it in case we weren't, didn't get paid mysteriously for three or four months at a time. Um, when, I, when I took over as CEO in 2014, one of the things that I did was to say, we're going to stop a lot of the experimentation that we've been doing with some of these agencies you know, that we're doing you know, kind of you know, three-month pilots or you know, new, new launching new capabilities. We're you know, having come out of that sequestration period we're only going to do, you know, projects that have six months worth of funding minimum. And yeah. frankly, that's crazy. Nobody does projects for six months, right? right. I mean, like that's already <laughs> quite risk acceptant. But I didn't want to be high. I wanted to be able to hire people and tell them that I would keep you, you are funded for six months, um, and we'd work out the rest of the runway from from there. But you know, I became much more focused on long term work and not these bits and bots. Um, especially once you get your once you get your cash flow arranged, you can you, you can work toward that long term continuing work, but it was, um, I mean, in some ways it was a lot more fun. We were doing all kinds of different stuff, you know, for all kinds of different uh, organizations. Um, but it's, uh, one, like an invoicing and sort of administrative, you know, nightmare. Yep. But but two, just a lot of, um, you know, it's a, it's a, you know, spanner in the works kind of constantly to, to manage that. So my risk mitigation strategy was to accept less risk. Yeah. It, it's interesting the ways in which the nature of the client that you're trying to work with uh, inherently limits your your growth potential. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so the the thing that has allowed you to start the business also makes it almost impossible to run that business successfully. It's 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 a bit of a there's a term that I would like to use for it that starts with mind that I won't use <laughs> on this podcast. It's a family podcast, and it's also one of the things. Um you know, for folks that are looking to start, you know, when you're starting, you've got you to go where opportunity takes you, right? You've got to be willing to seize kind of any brass ring. But those, those things are like stem cells. Once, once you lock it down, you now are locked into a particular approach. And so, you know, one thing that I certainly wasn't cognizant of, you know, when I first joined this, you know, my vast training in political science and, you know, social science research gave me a lot of insight into business strategy. No, it did not. Right. Um, was... You know, are we a product firm or a services firm? Yep. You know, and there's a lot of incentive to do one or or the other, but there's some point at which there's a point of no return. Yeah. Um, and it fundamentally affects the character of the firm, you know, going forward, both in terms of valuation, but also in terms of who you're hiring and how you get paid, and you know what your business model is. And some, I think there's a lot of folks who end up doing that sort of haphazardly or in an ad hoc manner, even though it has probably the decision has the most long-term implications for, you know, growth and, and value. That's right. And, and and this point about valuation is something that's come up a little bit in, in, in our conversations. And and so for, for, for folks listening at home, uh, as a services business, you're probably going to be valued at 1x annual revenue. That's the general more way. More, exactly. Yep. That's the general way I'll have it. As a product company, you can be at much at a much higher multiple. Now, then, as 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 a product company with a commercial market um, opportunity, that's a much higher multiple mm -hmm. than 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 for a limited defense marketplace. So the challenge. So so obviously, like the goal is 
be a product company in the commercial space. But you know, you have to be true to yourself. If you can't execute on that, mm -hmm. you're better to have a company that actually like has annual revenue right. <laughs> that then aspires to a market that you're never going to get to. For sure. I mean, and that's you know, I think one of the things that. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's very easy, you know, and, you know, we can have this experience, you know, in the nonprofit world, in the government office, you know, or in sort of startup land, you, know, you can think about all the things you do differently. Um, and, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, and as my CEO used to say, useless. Um, <laughs> you know, so it's all, it's just what you can think about doing maybe the next, the next round through. But there are, um, in the current market in, in, in DOD, and, you know, it's been six years since we, you know, sort of started this, you know, experiment, but... Um, it's really about volume. You know, if you're doing services, yep. you've got to be doing having a lot of humans in a lot of seats uh, in a lot of different agencies. Um, and as it turned out, that just wasn't the company that I wanted to run. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think it was the company that Dave wanted to to build. Right. Um, and but I think we, you know, the full sort of digestion, you know, a realization of that reality, you know, comes comes later in the process. Um, and trying to figure out how to do. The pure R and D play, um, you know, I spent a fair amount of time trying to figure out how to take the the work we've done at DARPA and other places, and then to productize that. Um, we would almost, I think, to to have done that successfully, needed to spin off a company. You yeah. Really, you basically act as your own incubator. Yeah. Uh, we did spin off a company. We spun off a company called First Mile Geo. Um, that is a product company, um, and, and working in this sort of geospatial um, data and geosocial data collection space. Um, and part of the reason we spun that out was just that the DNA of Keras yep. was so services oriented yep. um, that it could never really be the home for um, you know a, a price uh, product you know sales yeah exactly organization exactly so I think that there's um, there's been a certain amount of advice that you, that's been embedded in the last couple of minutes of our conversation which I think certainly it speaks to me as someone who's already gone through it although I'm not sure if it's advice if I already have the scar for it. Um, mm -hmm. Is there any other advice that you would offer for, for folks who are either running stuff or, or looking to start a business in that national security space? I mean, I would definitely say, you know, find someone as your COO, your chief operating officer, your chief finance officer um, who knows business. Yeah. Um, and I would say even, you know, business ops. Um, there is, for most of the folks, you know, um, you know certainly somebody with, with, with my background, you know, which not only was, was in research and was in um, sort of substantive analysis, um, you know, it turns out that I was fairly good at, at making decisions. Uh, I'm not an indecisive person, um, but I, don't, I didn't know business, right? So like having somebody who not only knows how to, but enjoys <laughs> management of, you know, key things like the accounts payable and the accounts receivable and having solid HR practices and keeping good employee files and keeping good vendor files um, I mean, that's the only reason we were able to, to you know, not the, not the only reason, but one of the main reasons we were able to have a successful sale is we had very clean books and very clean files and very good accounting of, you know, the last several years of the company. And, you know, you can totally, you can have catastrophic success that'll undo a company if you don't have good business practices. Absolutely. If you don't have good HR practices, you know, one threatened lawsuit and everything can be, you know, out, out the door. So, you know, having somebody, you know, who you trust completely, and that's hard to do, yep. um, but you absolutely have to have 100% trust in that person, well, you know, and, and a good division of labor over these are the business operations, which I almost never mucked in, um, 
and then work with them to build the strategy into you know the growth path you know from that but i think a lot of folks in dc it's like oh you know like i'm super smart and i know the defense department and i'm really into x y or z and that's hot right now so i'm gonna start a company super great go right ahead go with god yeah get a business person yeah, or outsource yeah. all of it which is expensive but you definitely need somebody you know who is who is keeping your books and keeping you because on the on the dod side on the government contracting side it's illegal. Yeah. All those mistakes are actually illegal. That's there are right, civil and right. criminal penalties yeah. to go along, you know, with it's it. a drag. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. A, you know, and your lawyer can tell you that it's illegal, but they're not very good at designing the systems that keep you out of it. That's right. right? So you want to make sure you've got those bases covered. So the other thing that's fascinating to me is that once you've done the hard thing of actually winning a contract, there's an almost infinite number of people who will happily outsource services for you. Yeah. Um, but that's not necessarily going to make your business healthy, mm-hmm. and they will take every penny you have because mm-hmm. um, that's their business. Yeah, it's 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 it's, it's a challenging environment. Um, but you you touched on um, your substantive background and some of the benefits there in terms of being able to make decisions, but the need to augment that in terms of um, a business ops person, which which I think is right. Uh, are there any sort of generalizable lessons though about the relative value of that substantive education or experience? compared to business school. Um, I'm also conscious of, of sort of your opening uh, remark that many of these sort of smaller or very focused um, consulting startups do take on the, the character of, of, of their CEO. Mm-hmm. And it's important to be substantive and have that, 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 that um, reputation. So w- what benefits are, there, are there, there? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's, I mean, it depends on what you're selling. Yeah, you know, if you're selling a product, um, you know, uh, my good friend Nate Fick, who I think you've had on, Nate yep. is great. He can sell cybersecurity software, you know, all day long. Mm-hmm. I don't believe that Nate has a, you know, super PhD level in-depth understanding of the particular technology. Doesn't matter. It's a product firm. They're not, it's not selling him. He's selling the product. Yeah. Right. Um, if you're running a consulting firm, you're selling you, right? And people are coming to you because they believe you have a solution. You yep. personally have a solution to their problem. Um, so that's tough. Right, and that that's you know an interesting challenge for growth. You know, how do you get it to the point where the one person isn't the one running the company, managing the clients, doing the work, and you know hiring all the new people? That, right? that, that does not sound like a scalable solution. <laughs> it is not a scalable yeah, yeah. solution, um, and I think there is some natural limit to consulting firms, right? Mm-hmm. Um, both in terms of, of profitability, but also in terms of quality, and certainly in terms of fun, right? There's some yep. ideal number of, yep. of people, you know, where you're going to max out uh, on that little trilemma. Um, but I think um, you know the general advice um, I would say is to be excellent. Yeah. Right. Um, not to be the best. It's not that it's per se a competition, but you're bringing excellence in some domain, you know, to to your job, to to this organization. Um, you know, my substantive expertise uh, was was valuable um, to particular clients. Right. So, you know, even big data work at DARPA when it was focused on Afghanistan, critical contributions that we were able to make there. Because of that, they trusted me to hire other analysts mm-hmm. to bring to that team. And those analysts wanted to come work for me because they knew that I understood their skills, not that I could employ them well. Um, always tried to do that. Sometimes hard to do that. I don't think I, you know, successfully got the, you know, all the the best out of every single employee. Um, but when you're hiring talent, you need, you know, talent begets talent, right? So mm-hmm. A's hire A's, B's hire C's, and you know, I believe that sort of through and through, um, both as a as a manager and then as a CEO in the in the organization. 
Um, but I think the, the, the difference, um, and this is even true on the, on the nonprofit side, you know, you're running an organization, there's money coming in, there's money going out, um, there's a number of vendors, but people's rent and mortgage payments and college tuition, you know, depends on that basically working. Yep. And so you need a mix of the people who can make it work. And, you know, as CEO, what I tried to do the most was to keep all of that strategy and administrative and financial brush clearing out of the way so the teams could run their projects. That's right. Right. Um, and so if, if they were distracted by a contract issue or a personnel issue, you know, or some other headache, that was a failure, you know, on, on my part. I had learned that by coming up in a small company. So I had a different times done, you know, yeah, lots of different yeah. small kinds of things. Um, you know, but that I think has to be the goal of the, of the executive team. And then it's about, you know, you see this in all kinds of different companies, you know, an executive with a strong technical background needs a, a president who has more of the strategy background, right? Mm -hmm. Or somebody who's come up as a chief marketing officer needs that, you know, mergers and acquisitions, CFO, you know, focused on that. So again, the individual doesn't scale. So it's really about how you put the team together to, to solve these problems. The challenge in a small business is that everyone's wearing four hats. Yep. Right? You don't get a CEO, a CFO, a strategist, a BD person, you know, and all. That's right. You can have all that. You just won't have any money yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, after right. the that's first right. four months, yeah. you know, especially if you're bootstrapped. Exactly right. I, I, I still recall when I was the only employee at the, at the, at the company I started, and I, I had a dilemma about, like, what do I put on my business card? Because mm -hmm. it seems self-aggrandizing to put, like, CEO or managing director. If I did that, I should also put, like, janitor, <laughs> accounts receivable, right. ops manager. So I went with nothing, which mm -hmm. confused people even more. <laughs> but that's a different story. So, so we've talked through a number of the challenges of, of, of running the, these organizations. Based on, on your experience, sort of what, what recommendations do you have for the DOD in, in way, for ways that that they might make it easier um, for, for startups to operate, to succeed. You talked a little bit about um, sort of more charge card, easier to do low dollar trend, relatively low dollar transactions. Are there other, other sort of uh, things that you think would make a difference? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's certainly one place, especially for kind of data-driven or software-driven pilot projects. I think that's, a, a, you know, some revisions to that simplified acquisition threshold. Um, you know, some... You know, we, we are not in the day of the sole source contract uh, at this point. Um, they were, you know, used widely uh, and kind of in the 2000s, um, pretty much stopped with sequestration. Uh, they were used and abused. There's no yep. doubt about it. Um, but that means there's also there's a punishing effect for a lot of folks who do have a unique capability or, you know, do have, um, you know, unique capability to, to bring to the government. Um, you know, but sole source contracting, talk about a dark art, right? I mean, you just got to get a willing, you know, contracting officer and somebody to sign off, but nobody wants to sign it and, you know, all, all of that. Um, I mean, one thing I think that, you know, could be helpful, um, and I think there are some groups that are trying to, you know, on the private sector side, Eastern Foundry and, mm -hmm. and some others who are trying to simplify this, um, you know, you know some senior officials, they've, you've put together a capability, whether it's a service or a product, they would like to use it somewhere. There is really nowhere you can go that figure, to figure out, you know, because the senior officials, you know, have no idea what contract vehicles their office uses. Right. They don't right? want to know. They don't want to know. <laughs> they have, you know, they've never met the contracting officer, you know, in their office. So some sort of decoder ring that would tell you, look, you got to find somebody with a C port E 
vehicle or Mm -hmm. you need to figure out how to get on arl4 you know like and i'm not explaining what these terms mean because nobody knows what they mean you know no one should care about those (laughs) yes but but those are actual vehicles you know (laughs) and so you know these are the people that you can reach out to and some you know and some folks were were good about it um but it's you know yeah, you don't just have to sell the government. You've got to sell these, you know, the prime contract holders, or to have some other sort of simplified acquisition. I think that that would be one thing. I don't think that there's a lot they can do. I mean, maybe on kind of the accounting and the timesheets. I mean, I mm-hmm. think a lot of that is is good practice and good protection of, of taxpayer money on on some of the things. We we were a small firm. There was a lot of other regulations that we were we were exempt from. You know, as, as a result of being small, but. Um, you know, I, that was not the part that I found particularly onerous. Got it. <laughs> so, um, conscious of time, and, and just sort of to, to wrap things up here, in, in this podcast series, we're, we're exploring four perspectives on startups. The entrepreneur, the investor, mm-hmm. the de- defense industry, and the DOD or, or USG. I'd just be interested in your thoughts on the value that, that any of those actors provides to the other and, and that they receive from, from, from the other. We've touched on it a little bit through the conversation, but just sort of your synthesis of what that value proposition sure. looks like. I mean, I think entrepreneurs obviously, you know, are great. That's that's where innovation happens. Mm-hmm. Um, there's actually, there's a fair amount of innovation, especially in the research arms, you know, um, of the, the larger defense, you know, firms. Yep. Um, but in terms of genuinely new capabilities, new approaches, um, something that I'm particularly interested in, new operating concepts, you know, that's that's coming out of small groups, small companies um, really trying to, to, to bring that in. The challenge is whether or not the government is a good customer, right. you know, for those, for those folks. And I think that that's really what uh, DIUX and others are trying to, 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 to grapple with. Um, investors, you know, can provide, um, obviously, you know, key upfront capital. We were bootstrapped from the beginning. We were not debt financed. We were not VC backed. Um, there was a lot of of control and power that came from that, but also a lot of constraint. I mean, there was things that we weren't able to do because we literally didn't have the the cash. Um, investors that are savvy to the government enterprise and the defense enterprise in particular, I think, can can help guide you know companies in that in that direction, but also get them over those first year humps. Exactly. Right? Get them through the the prototyping, the beta testing, or while you're waiting for the contract vehicles to to sort of get themselves worked out. The hellacious sales cycle. <laughs> you know, you really need, you need 18 months, mm-hmm. right? I mean, and mm-hmm. that's a long time in, in investor terms. Um, you know, the defense industry obviously gets kind of a, a bum rap in this, in this discussion. Um, and, you know, but what they do provide is continuity. Exactly. There's incredible depth of experience yep. um, in those large firms, um, not just with the technologies, but also with the technologies, but with, with contracting and, um, I mean, I'm, innovation is, is important and it's necessary, but we can't have a defense department that is reinventing itself or its procurement requirements, you know, every six or 18 months because it takes five years to build something, yep. right? Um, so there needs to be, you know, some smoothing, you know, in those, in those development, in those development curves. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that that's the real challenge, I think, here and, you know, in, this is where, like a lot of things in Washington right now, you know, they read as collusion or corruption, you know, when people do things to mutual benefit, mm-hmm. um, you know, and so it looks like the Iron Triangle or it looks like this revolving door and there's there's enough bad behavior that we should be suspicious, you know, in a lot of, across a lot of these different venues. But it also, 
for people to want to do work with the government, it needs to be profitable. Yep. Right? Yep. Uh, and you might accept lower profit for continuity, right? For consistency, you know, for volume, yep. right? If, we, if we're missing some of those things, the government and the Defense Department in particular stops being an attractive place to do business. And people will, especially when we're talking in kind of the cutting edge software and data and cyber related spaces, they're going to take, do that work someplace else. They don't need to try to spend 18 months getting on a seaport e-contract yep. you know, to do something. Um, that's where, that's I mean, one of the biggest differences now than in 1995, 1985, um, that, you know, how does the government become an attractive customer? Um, because when the, when the, it's, it's not a problem to fire a client, that's right? right? And when they're too big of a pain, you will tell, you'll definitely do that. And I think that's, you know, one of the things that, you know, of all the acquisition reform pieces we could talk about. That's a place where, you know, why should people want to do business with us? Um, and then that's where you can get people, I think, you know, long-term commitments. Um, okay, well, we're not going to, like, charge you the, the arm and the leg, right? We have, you know, government pricing. We have, you know, better deals that we can, we can make. Um, but that's got to be a two-way street, and that's a, a difficult conversation, I think, for a lot of folks to have in the current environment. No, I think that's exactly right. And, and while that's challenging, I, I think that's a, a highly, a wholly appropriate point to end our conversation on because um, it could still go either way. I think we're seeing lots of positive signs, but it's not clear to me that, that we're going to get out of this mess on our current trajectory. So with that, thanks again for joining us, Aaron. And I hope you take at least a couple of months off before going on to your next thing, whatever that might be, and enjoy a successful exit. I'll surely try. Thanks, Ben. To hear more from the National Security Startup Series, go to startups.cnas.org or search for CNAS on iTunes or SoundCloud.